0: I don't want to say there's a touch of bait and switch in the uh, lecture that I'm about to deliver. But if you've come hoping for a a complete solution to the question of what is the common good and how we pursue it, um, you'll have to buttonhole me afterward over drinks because I'm not I spent a certain amount of time diving deep into mid-century Christian literature debates about the common good. And when I came up for air, I realized that I was, you know, totally out of my depth. And so I would retreat a little bit to something that as a journalist and newspaper columnist, I have a slightly better handle on, which is just raw power and how it's wielded <laughs> in society. So there will be some discussion of the common good in this talk, but a resolution of the core question will you know, await the next Morningside event which you'll all have to attend. Um, but I am going to talk a lot about uh, Jacques Maritain. So um, why don't I begin? Again, thank you all for being here. So let's start with a big question. How should contemporary Christians in the United States, the Western world writ large, react to the decline of their churches the secularization of the culture, the final loss potentially of anything called Christendom. Perhaps one very important author has suggested they should reconcile themselves to this new dispensation, accepting that the modern age is not a sacral, but a secular age, that the state can no longer be treated as the secular arm of the spiritual power, that the freedom of individual conscience is one of the crucial assets of our civilization. In this new order, any Christian approach to politics must accept the fact of pluralism with its diverse spiritual lineages and its variety of moral creeds and place its hope in the church's liberty, its opportunity to act as a spiritual leaven free from the corruptions of the past. But if this sounds like surrender to the spirit of the age, There is an alternative perspective. Christians might instead set out to build a new Christendom, a new Christianly inspired civilization. They might try to bring new life out of what remains of so-called cultural Christianity, the often unconscious Christian feelings and moral structures embodied in the history of the nations born out of the old Christendom. They might seek to turn the state away from a dangerous moral indifferentism because the final objective of the law is to make men morally good and toward a public recognition of God and biblical faith. Above all, they would reject the chimera of perfect moral and theological neutrality. For in reality, the world has done with neutrality. Willingly or unwillingly, states will be obligated to make a choice for or against the gospel. They will be shaped either by the totalitarian spirit or by the Christian spirit. I think in using these quotations, these descriptions, I sketch, to a reasonable approximation, one of the crucial debates among Christian intellectuals today, dividing not just conservatives from liberals, but conservatives against one another in a a debate about how the Church of Jesus Christ should think about liberalism, secularism, the United States of America, modernity itself. But, and this is a terrible trick, and I'm sure it's not surprising at all. The reality is that all of those quotations belong to the same writer. Indeed, not just to the same writer, but to the same writer in a single chapter of a single book, to Jacques Maritain, writing on church and state in the sixth chapter of his book, Man and the State, published in 1951. And the fact that I can construct such different, seemingly competing narratives from a single essay suggests that returning to Maritain's work might shed interesting light on our own controversies almost three generations later. So in the chapter in question, Maritain was rather famously, as part of a larger movement, trying to develop Catholic teaching on church-state relations beyond his church's traditional view that the two powers ideally should be effectively united, integrated as the soul and body are integrated in thought and operation. That older view implied that Catholicism should be recognized as the official religion of the state, that there should be some subordination of secular power to the hierarchical power of the church, and that the church should be able to rely on the secular power to enforce its own claims over all baptized Christians, making state power available, for instance, for the coercion or punishment of heretics and schismatics. Some of you may be in this very audience and to the maintenance of uniformity rather than pluralism in Christian practice and belief. The Catholic Church of Maritans' day, the post-World War II, pre-Vatican II church, was willing to accept that this kind of arrangement was often, maybe now increasingly, always a practical impossibility, but it was retained as an official ideal, a hoped-for destination even for a diverse and heavily Protestant Republic like the United States. Whereas Maritain was arguing with whatever care and caution and subtlety for a more explicit shift where the church would say that the ideal of church state relations in the Middle Ages, the sacral Middle Ages, no longer applied in secular modernity. And that the ideal relationship was now a different one from which there could be no return to, say, the political theology of the Spanish Inquisition. Now, whether or not Maritain was intellectually successful in arguing that this shift could happen without any change in formal doctrine, as an evolution rather than a rupture, in practice, he and others did succeed in changing the public posture of the Catholic Church. Within a generation, to the extent that the older teaching still persisted, it did so as a hidden aspect, a traditionalist secret wrapped inside very modern-sounding rhetoric. Thus, even scholars like Thomas Pink argue that the Second Vatican Council actually retained the prior teaching, some kind of integralist ideal. Even those arguments tend to rely on close reading and careful parsing, while conceding that in terms of Catholicism's self-presentation, its official theology, as distinct maybe from inerrant magisterial theology, Maritain's ideas carried all before them. But they did so, crucially, because they promised something more than simple church-state separation, and certainly something more than a reconciliation with liberalism in its most secularizing aspect. The apparent dualities and internal tensions of Maritain's essay reflect this key aspect of his argument, that in setting aside any formal claim to political power or establishment, in laying down the tiara, the Church of Christ could not just retain influence, but aspire to a kind of soft hegemony, a power within a pluralist context that would be exercised more indirectly, but remain real power all the same. Real enough indeed to merit the old label Christendom, however different its modern aspects. This power would flow first and foremost from what Maritain called vivifying inspiration. The church separated from the state freed of certain corruptions and temptations, would be more radiant with a penetrating and vivifying influence on other agents whose place is less high in the scale of being. But that influence, crucially, would not just be felt in the individual conscience. Maritan's other agents pretty clearly include various secular forms of power, the powers of lawmaking and culture shaping, which would be expected to be still, in some sense, on the side of the gospel, never imposing all its doctrines, but still animated by its teachings, still seeking a Christian politics amid a landscape of theological pluralism. So if from the vantage point of 1951, Maritan was a liberalizer, from the vantage point of 2022, he can sound more like one of the fearsome post-liberals. His vision rules out coercion in belief but clearly allows, within the limits of prudence, for all manner of morals legislation, Sabbatarian laws, bans on pornography, prayer in schools, and more. It requires religious toleration and church-state separation, but then doesn't expect that every religious body will enjoy equal influence or equal deference. It expects the state to accommodate human weakness, but also to seek moral improvement, not simply leaving individuals to their libertarian devices. And if, in theory, this vision of the Christian society can seem a little vague and abstract, as well as maybe idealistic and over-optimistic, if the two impulses that I counterposed to one another at the outset aren't always perfectly harmonized, still, Maritan could claim that it had a, his vision had a hard-headed and practical basis in the real world. Because with whatever theological baggage, he felt he was essentially describing something like the American model, of church-state relations, of Christian politics playing out in a pluralist society, albeit reimagined somewhat in his specific argument for a society with a Catholic majority rather than a Protestant one. So the proper exercise of Christian power under modern conditions was not visible only in some theoretical utopia. It was already clear enough in the role that Protestant churches, eventually joined by the Catholic Church, had played in this country for generations. Here, Christian belief was not imposed, nor any specific denomination privileged, but nonetheless, America was clearly a Christian society, more Christian in practice than many European countries with established churches. And the power of the faith was manifest in the shaping role that Christian ideas played in so many prominent institutions, so many political and cultural debates. Thus, without ever demanding creedal conformity, let alone licensing and inquisition, Christian America was constantly debating the proper application of biblical principle and natural law to secular politics, constantly generating religious reform movements with a social or economic vision of, yes, the common good. And that long experience from abolition to the temperance movement, the social gospel, to the Christian influence on the New Deal with revivalism a constant throughout, demonstrated the fundamental plausibility of the Maritanian vision. The church and state could disentangle without disentangling Christianity from politics, without undermining Christian faith, without even abandoning some idea of Christendom itself. So that was 1951. And today we know, or at least a lot of people feel, that such optimism was time-bound and ill-fated. The religious arrangements that Maritan observed in America, the mix of church-state separation and soft Protestant hegemony dissolved across the generation following his essay. And the religious conservatism that then sought to restore some kind of American Christendom via an evangelical Catholic alliance was effectively defeated in its turn. In Europe, a Maritanian model arguably flourished in the brief window of his lifetime The Christian democratic golden age of Adenauer and de Gaulle, and then similarly dissolved into outright de Christianization with any alternative confined to the continent's peripheries. This unhappy experience has generated various critiques of Maritain's vision among writers sifting through the wreckage of Western Christianity, trying to figure out where everything went wrong. And it should be noted that many of them follow in Maritain's own footsteps. Since by the time of the Peasant of the Garan, his late-life, mid-1960s cry of disillusionment, he was convinced that his own hope for an advent of a Christian politics had been completely frustrated, and casting about for more radical alternatives on the left and the right, from his friend Saul Alinsky to the Chilean Christian Democrat Eduardo Frey. So Maritain was on board (laughs) with the idea that that things things had not gone according to plan. But so what were these critiques? Well, first, there is a fairly famous philosophical critique from earlier from Maritain's own time, indebted to Thomas de Koninck, that suggests that Maritain's philosophical personalism was a wrong turn, that his vision of the common good was too fundamentally individualistic, too easily turned, despite its claims to be communitarian, to functionally libertarian ends, opening the door in turn for a kind of return of totalitarianism. This is a very interesting argument, and it represents some of those deep waters that Nathaniel encouraged me to dive into, but it's also highly technical, deeply frustrating, and to me raises the question, could the decline of European and American Christianity really have been foreordained by a debate that only about six people seem to be able to completely follow? (laughs) And I want to concede that possibly so, but for the sake of the rest of us, the the journalists especially, the rest of this talk will follow what I think is the more legible and straightforward political critique of Maritain, which suggests basically that he was too naive about what would follow sooner or later, sooner in this case, from the church's surrender of formal political power. Whatever soft power the faith retained, whatever vivifying influence, the terms of that surrender still fundamentally left Christianity at the mercy Of the state. And as Thomas Pink puts it in one of the more direct critiques of the church and state chapter, since the 1950s, political secularization has not taken the benign form that Maritain predicted. Instead, rather than, as he hoped, a clearer distinction between the temporal and the sacred, a clearer sense of the church's superiority to the grubby political realm, Today, we have a secular state imposing itself ever more disrespectfully on Christianity, constantly demanding things of the church, disregarding the limits on secular power that Maritain and later the authorities of the Second Vatican Council both seem to assume would hold. And the lesson then, especially for writers sympathetic to the older style of integralism that Maritain was criticizing, The lesson might be that a regime that does not explicitly use its powers in favor of the true faith will eventually end up using its powers against that faith, and that if you give up direct control over the state, you will eventually earn its enmity. Out of this critique, you can tell a story about Christianity's specifically American decline in which the secular state becomes the key player. The soft hegemony of American Protestantism in this account didn't simply fail from the 1950s onward. Rather, it was torn down from above using raw political power, beginning with the Supreme Court decisions on school prayer and continuing through Roe v. Wade to Obergefell versus Hodges, with other social and economic coups and revolutions from above folded in as well the soft Christian power that Maritan observed and celebrated in this account was no match for the hard power of liberal and later neoliberal elites. And the specific kind of political secularity that he defended was always destined to give way to something different, less benign and Christian influenced, more aggressive and domineering and intolerant. And this last point represents the critique of Maritain at the strongest, since I think it's impossible to read some of his work today without occasionally picking up the same over-optimistic vibe that informed so much religious writing between, let's say, World War II and 1968. The kind of Harvey Coxian feeling that you're listening to a confident mid-century urban planner sell you an apartment in Brasilia. (laughs) And that looked dated to Maritain himself, as we've seen 15 years later, let alone to us today. But with that concession to his over-optimism, over his Coxian vibe, one might make two arguments in defense of Maritain's general perspective. The first would directly challenge the claim that the primary force driving American Christianity's retreat has actually been the power of a secular and anti-Christian state. Yes, state power has mattered to religious change. Yes, culture can be downstream of politics but in a fashion that's more often provisional than decisive, and still frequently subordinate not just to general social and cultural trends, but more importantly to developments and crises within the Christian church itself. Thus, the school prayer decisions, for instance, did clearly strike a blow against soft Protestant hegemony. But judicial hostility to public expressions of Christianity really peaked in the 1960s and early 1970s and has been partially rolled back by justices friendlier to religious liberty and religious expression in the decades since. The crucial Supreme Court decisions on homosexuality and same-sex marriage clearly followed broad shifts in public opinion rather than preceding them, ratifying a cultural revolution rather than imposing one. The recent use of civil rights law to harass conservative Christians is just that, a recent development made possible by prior institutional change and cultural weakness, not some immediate and inexorable consequence of laws passed to a very different purpose almost 60 years ago. And while the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision on abortion did impose a revolutionary dictum, Given that the pro-life movement is pretty much the only element of religious conservatism that's actually gained some ground since the 1970s, it's hard to argue that Roe v. Wade explains secularization, the decline of religious identification, or the cultural weakness of the churches. Instead, the more important explanation lies within, in Christianity's internal divisions. It's failure to respond effectively to social and economic and technological changes its theological civil wars and failures of leadership and egregious scandals. No ruthless secular authority drove the Protestant mainline to collapse. The crisis of faith among the mainline's own leaders, the bishops and theologians who denied core Christian doctrines, the desperate chasing after certain political causes to make up for the waning of missionary zeal. Even the tendency long predating the 1960s for upper upper middle-class Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists to have ever fewer children. All these mattered far more than anything the Warren Court or later neoliberalism did. Likewise, it's hard to see how a Supreme Court decision outlawing school prayer in public schools led to the swift post 1960s decline of Catholic infrastructure in America. An infrastructure which had after all been forged precisely as an alternative to soft Protestantism in public schools and which had flourished during a period of much greater anti-Catholic impositions than anything the secular state brought to bear in the 60s or 70s. Nevertheless, it was those years, rather than the 1870s, that were the decades of Catholic crisis and partial collapse. Again, not because of external political pressure, but because of terrible internal divisions over how to adapt or not to the social trends and changes of the era. Post-Vatican II Catholicism divided over liturgy, theology, morality, and finally politics. And then its partial recovery of unity, at times at least in the John Paul II era, was undermined by the the horrors of the sex abuse crisis. Would the church have avoided all of this if Griswold v. Connecticut had been decided differently? Surely not. The breaking of pre-conciliar Catholicism in the post-conciliar era was something that Catholics did themselves. So it shouldn't be surprising, then, that Maritain's formula for a gentle Christian hegemony failed in an era when so many Christians lost faith in their own doctrines, when the churches divided over what were and weren't essential teachings, and when the salt lost its savor in so many conspicuously scandalous ways. His formula for a kind of Christian power under pluralism doesn't require Christian perfection. Nobody would call America's 19th century Protestant establishment perfect or saintly always, but it does require some degree of doctrinal confidence, some reasonable fit between ecclesiastical structures and social trends, and some clear sense of missionary zeal. And the fact that his model of Christian politics (coughs) failed across an era when Catholics were feuding fiercely over their own liturgy, when mainline Protestantism lost faith in the resurrection and the virgin birth, and when evangelicalism's leadership regressed from Billy Graham to Jerry Falwell Jr., might indict the era's Christians more than it does, and than it indicts his model of how a Christian society ought to work. <clears throat> Especially since, in the same period, there wasn't really a countervailing example of how a closer relationship between church and state could have saved Christian power from eclipse. Quite the reverse. While the American model of power amid pluralism did not prevent Christianity's decline, the ebb of faith and Christian influence was still less complete in the United States than in societies that modeled a more integrated church-state relationship prior to the 1960s. The self-consciously hard-headed, maybe faintly grand inquisitorial idea that the church can survive scandal, social change, and theological crisis through the raw exercise of power may be true in certain historical cases, but it finds no vindicating example in recent modern history. Instead, just in Catholic examples, the stronger church-state integration in, say, Quebec or Spain or Ireland proved a paper tiger rather than a firm platonic guardian and simply collapsed when it came to the test. And meanwhile, and here we come to the second point that might be made in defense of the Maritain hypothesis, his vision of religious power amid pluralism. That model actually arguably continued to function quite impressively in post 1960s America. It's just that a somewhat different religion filled the place heretofore occupied by Judeo-Christian values, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, mainline Christianity, whatever you want to call the soft, the soft consensus of, of the past, seizing its own kind of soft hegemony, filling the space left by the crack up of the mainline and the differing failures of Catholicism and evangelicalism. The American public square did not, in this reading of history, become simply naked as Christian influence receded Instead, a religious tendency that had been subordinate throughout American history, potent but not hegemonic, took over the role that Maritain envisioned for his own church and Christianity as a whole. This tendency can carry many, many labels, but for this essay's, this talk, excuse me, purposes, we'll call it post-Protestant Gnosticism, descended along different lines from early American Deism transcendentalism, various health and wealth enthusiasms, and manifest in the therapeutic forms of spirituality that were captured at the moment of their ascent to power by writers like Philip Reif and Robert Bella, and that now operate in American life in roughly the same way and with very roughly the same sort of influence as mainline Protestantism 100 years ago. Lacking firm doctrinal definitions and ecclesiastical hierarchies, and including among its ranks, a real mixture of formal commitments, secular, spiritual, semi-Christian, this new religion's churchliness was not immediately evident, which is one reason that Christians again in the 60s and 70s were more often worried about raw atheism than the faith that was actually taking over their position in the culture. But over, the, over time, the label that's applied by internet reactionaries to this post-Christian formation, the cathedral, has become more and more appropriate. Like the old religious establishment, the ascended Gnosticism operates through a set of institutions that resemble an Ecclesia, both the old institutions of Protestant Christianity, its universities especially, <clears throat> um, and also more novel institutional powers, from the complex tangle of big foundations and philanthropies and activist outfits to the church of the masses manifest in media and television and now Silicon Valley. Like the old Christian establishment, this new hegemon experiences periods of revival and inner turmoil. The new age of the seventies was formative in the same way that the George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards era was formative for early Republic Protestantism. And the current great Awakening resembles the 19th century awakenings in its effort to renew and reshape the various institutions of this church. And like, like those past, like, like the Christian hegemony of the past, the ascendant Gnosticism influences society in something much closer to Maritain's model than to a stricter form of integralism. It wields its power primarily through the cultural influence of non-political institutions and only secondarily through direct lawmaking or rulemaking. Its rule is firm within its own institutional territory, but more limited and moderated in the political sphere writ large. And where it directly shapes the interpretation of laws, it often does so through vivifying inspiration rather than ecclesial imposition. A certain style of Gnostic values, you could say, pervade the key rulings of a figure like Anthony Kennedy without there having been some explicit Gnostic religious edict that Kennedy was bound to follow. And there has been no central committee of wokeness, no progressive holy office, driving the rolling reinterpretations of the Civil Rights Act. At the same time, the new hegemon is tolerant of religious difference, allowing conservative forms of Christianity to persist even unto this lecture in the heart of Manhattan, in the same way that the old Christian establishment allowed America's various forms of religious diversity and Christian heresy to flourish. It just sets certain limits or aspires to set certain limits on their freedoms, establishes some implicit cultural hierarchies, and generally tries to nudge other faiths towards itself, especially on certain key issues. The various attempts to push Christian churches towards a reconciliation with the sexual revolution, for instance, doesn't really resemble Reformation-era repression of religious dissent, but it does somewhat represent the constant pressure experienced by Mormonism or Christian science or even Catholicism in our more Protestant past. When the issue wasn't doctrine writ large or even some specific, uh, but some specific practice or idea that fell just a little bit too far outside the moral and cultural consensus. Keep your faith, but consider making it a little more like ours, is the constant message from the hegemon, with the further promise that if you converge with the hegemon, you might get to share some of its cultural power, rather than remaining perpetually outside the cathedral's doors. Now, of course, the pressure on non-Protestants in the 19th century wasn't always gentle, and some critics of the new hegemon argue that its own relative tolerance is just a temporary stage. That already in speech codes and cancellations, you can see an incipient totalitarianism, a more censorious and inquisitorial future, with even overt persecution waiting in the wings. And these critics are certainly correct, that the new religious hegemon has become more intolerant as its power in certain core institutions has increased But I think it's still very much an open question whether that intolerance will lead inexorably to greater power over the entire culture, or whether in a society as diverse and complex as ours, the zeal of a hegemon has a self-limiting effect, generating stronger backlash when it uses power too overtly, creating new centers of resistance when it imposes theological conformity too explicitly, and imposing a Brezhnevian, or if you prefer, late 19th century Bostonian freeze that looks solid but can't survive the heat of crisis. Whereas the more relaxed kind of Gnostic hegemony, a more Meritanian form, think early Obama-era progressivism, not peak great Awakening progressivism, might have more staying power, dis- disarming opposition, preempting backlash, balancing its power and its society's pluralism sustainably, rather than risking a crack-up for the sake of inquisitorial control. At the very least, we can observe that the more intense form of the new religion is meeting resistance all over right now, even unto San Francisco's school boards. And just as the most stringent expressions of Protestant hegemony in the old America sometimes found themselves resented and rolled back, with prohibition being a conspicuous example, so our Gnostic church, could remain culturally established for another generation, but find that its militants and missionaries are forced back to gentler tactics for a time. So from this admittedly highly debatable interpretation of ideas in recent histories, I want to draw a few very provisional conclusions. First, for the sake of these debates happening within Christianity among Christian intellectuals, there's important and interesting common ground between Maritans' attempt to reconcile Catholic teaching with religious liberty and pluralism and the current post-liberal attempt to distinguish a Christian political vision from so-called classical liberalism or libertarianism. The Maritainian and contemporary post-liberal visions both imagine a society shaped in profound ways by religious power. They both expect, The law to be a moral teacher and the state to seek the common good. And they share an implicit critique of classical liberalism in its purest form as fatally naive, its goal of strict religious neutrality a functional impossibility. Because even under conditions of pluralism, religion and politics will never be separated. Some religions will always shape laws and cultural norms more than others. A religion that wins converts which obviously Christianity aspires to do, will inevitably end up wielding increased political power as well. And if you throw down one religious hegemon, a new spiritual power will fill that void soon enough. So if this shared view, this Maritanian post-liberal overlap is correct, then it might imply that some of the running debates about Christianity's relationship to, say, the American founding the place of ancient religion within modern liberalism, are putting a little too much weight on what we might suppose in theory, and not enough on what we've already seen in practice. Whatever the founding generation of this country intended, or whatever the implicit philosophical implications of some of their arguments implied, 1776 and 1789 created a political order call it a liberal political order that has been compatible with multiple different forms of soft religious hegemony. And you can, you know, subdivide our history in different ways. You could say there was a brief Unitarian era, a long Protestant ascendancy, a shorter Protestant Catholic and Judeo-Christian era, and finally our own period of Gnostic power. But however you subdivide it, each of those forms has been potent and influential. Each has been somewhat contested and contingent. And that means that for anyone discontented with our current state of affairs, our current hegemon, the record of American history offers license for all kinds of aspirations, including a vision of a renewed American Christendom that both Maritain and the post-liberals share. But then where Maritain diverged clearly from the old integralism and seems to diverge in certain ways from some forms of post-liberalism as well. On questions of how closely should church and state be aligned, how tolerant of pluralism should this imagined renewed Christendom be, whether Christian renewal can be imposed from above, or whether it must begin as an organic and voluntary process, how much can be accomplished, religiously and culturally, if your primary weapons are political, on those questions, I think the record of the last 70 years has continued to supply evidence in Maritans' favor. So that evidence in a short list, that again, that Christianity's decline was driven more by an internal crisis of faith than by political pressure from above or without. That closer to integralist solutions to the crisis failed more completely than the Maritanian model. That the Gnostic successor to Protestant hegemony achieved its own religious ascendancy in roughly or even precisely the way that Maritain imagined religious power being wielded effectively within pluralism, and that this Gnosticism's hold on power today is more contested and vulnerable to backlash the more fully integralist it seeks to become. And then a final, not really throwaway piece of evidence that even the contemporary models invoked by post-liberals for how a Christian revival might be encouraged from above, most of them Eastern European, and touching on subjects that should be in all of our thoughts these days, in fact, have not clearly generated an alternative Christendom that's as vital in practice as American Christianity remains even now as the weaker religious power under pluralism after decades of cultural defeat. Just to be super specific, I'm talking about let's say, current trends in Hungarian and Polish church attendance. At some point, the political embrace of cultural Christianity may revivify practicing Christianity, but it hasn't obviously happened yet. So all this suggests, on the one hand, that American Christians interested in the recovery of lost influence can and should go some distance with the critique of classical liberalism, recognizing that the perfectly religiously neutral society does not exist, that to preach the gospel is to inevitably seek some kind of Christendom, and that what Christians see in today's progressive cathedral isn't just an imitation of how their own faith once wielded power within pluralism, but in its milder forms also a model for how it might someday do so again. But with all that, on the other hand, it also suggests the importance of recognizing the moral and spiritual advantages of putting limits on faith's temporal ambitions and trying to wield power within pluralism rather than over and against it unlike maritan i don't want to make any incredibly strong claims about the ideal church state relationship under ideal social conditions not least because i think official and magisterial catholic teaching at the moment are more unsettled in many ways than they were in his own time. And also because I don't think those ideal arguments are useful or necessary in cases where the practical realities seem so clear. I think for those to hear, these are the practical lessons of the recent Christian past and our own country's history. Religious power wielded wisely and mildly and indirectly with due respect to liberty and diversity and a focus first on the faith's internal health and zeal can potentially sustain religious power, a religious ascendancy for many generations. But religious power wielded too much against pluralism with political ambitions substituting for real faithfulness is likely to corrupt and enervate and bring about its own reward. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Ross. Um, we have a number of students here. I'm going to give them priority in the Q&A. So if you're a student or if you think you can pass as one. are we all students? Of life. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if, you're a, if, if you're a student under a university, not just a student of life, I'm going to give you first priority in questions. I'm going to let Ross field the questions. We have about 20 minutes, and uh, my colleague, John Luke, has a microphone. He'll come over to you. Um, I, yeah, so I have a question about pluralism. Um, I'm not really sure what it is. Um, I mean, the sort of more serious glass on the question is that you set your talk up as a defence of Marathon, right? The defence of the idea that uh, a plausible theological politics should, like, you know, be guided by the aim of adapting itself to a pluralistic society. But it feels like the moral of a bunch of the sociological observations that you made is that the notion of pluralism actually doesn't really have as much sociological purchase as like liberal thinkers think it does, right? Because as you point out, that like supposedly a religious secular society has like all kinds of strands of religion built into it, and so on. But the the, the way Maritain sets the problem up, right, is you know taking the idea of a pluralistic society for granted. It feels like one of the models of your talk is that we shouldn't do that. That the notion of pluralism and of, you know, and of the a-religious character of social life, um, or the diffusely religious character of social life, actually requires a little bit more scrutiny, right? Because where some people say a-religious justice, you see heterodox religion, right? So... so
0: yes, so I, I think, well, I think that's right, but I think it's in my, you know, highly provisional reading, I think that is there in Maritain too, and that you know, it, it is I, I meant what I said that I, I don't think the tension that I use to frame the essay is perfectly reconciled in, in, in his, in his piece. And it's, no, I don't think it's, I don't think it's perfectly reconciled in my analysis either. Um, but it seems like two, two things can be true. One is that, you know, modern conditions are seem radically pluralistic when you contrast them to, um, you know, a lot of, pre, what, you know, to super-generalized pre-modern and traditional societies, right? Um, there is extreme diversity of beliefs and attitudes and commitments, and that's, that's sort of a, you know, a fundamental reality that, to the extent anything has sort of resolved it, it's only done so through t- totalitarian methods and then not successfully, Anyway, um although that's itself an open an open question, so that's true, but then it's also true that in those pluralist societies, some ideas are more important than others, and some institutions are more important than others, right and you know, I'm describing the sort of dominant ideas and institutions of our time as Explicitly religious, deals some bases, you know. I, I think it's to, certainly, certainly the, the the question of what is a religion is highly contestable. And, you know, is is you know what I'm calling Gnosticism really a religion in the sense that Christianity is religion, et cetera, right? Those are those are very reasonable questions. But the the if you keep it just in the realm of idea, you know, if you say we're talking about Categories that can encompass ideology as well as theology, or, you know, and so on. Um, I think there, in Maritain's argument from the beginning, if you go through the essay, <laughs> is the sense of like, yeah, there's, you know, you're you're going to have you're going to have religious toleration, you're going to have a lot of religious diversity, but you're going to have a central faith in the society. You're going to have some faiths that are closer to that central faith exert more influence because of their closeness to it, and some others that fur- are further away, and you're going to have, you know, you're going to have some faiths that are beyond the limits of pluralism, which is something, you know, everybody tacitly accepts, right, um, with disagreement about where the lines are, and you're going to have some effective, you know, in in the place where the central faith and the faiths closest to the central faith have a kind of moral consensus, you are going to have some vision of the common good that expresses itself in law and culture. Um, I think that's right. And I think it it is useful as, yeah, I mean, one, obviously, this is not something that's incompatible with a classical liberal framework, but the initial commitments of classical liberalism and the arguments that classical liberals tend to make against um you know, both in our own debates, the woke left and the post-liberal right tend to foreground the idea of neutrality. And I think it's worth foregrounding, for our purposes, the inevitable limits of that that neutrality, not least because it offers these contending groups something to aspire towards, right? Like, yes, you know, if you win a debate you do get to have a lot more influence over society. It's not, you know, the United States historically has not just been a sort of perpetual debating society where everybody, you know, sort of has interesting debates and then returns to their community and nothing changes. The results of debates have big implications for law and politics and culture. Um, And that, in turn, for... When you've lost a series of debates, right, as Christians have, that is itself a form of it holds out a kind of hope, right? A sense that, like, okay, you know, for these various reasons you lost these debates, but you don't have to you don't have to go all the way to um, you know to the idea of exerting direct political power to imagine yourself wielding, you know, some version of the power that you're on the receiving end of now, Um, which is sort of a, you know, maybe not the the most Christian of impulses to carry into politics, but it's it's clearly one that is in the minds of a lot of religious conservatives today.
2: One question that I had was, um, well, I guess I'll start with kind of the, the post-liberals would say that it's actually no accident that, um, this specific religion, um, right. locus, has arisen in this particular form. Um, you know, it's always has uh, maybe little different flavors across the years, but um, one of the big post liberal accounts of it is that it sees itself as progressivism, as uh, in sort of the, the Marcuse line of thinking, sees itself specifically as the heir to the liberal tradition um, in which our you know politics have been designed for 250 years. I guess my question is: um, Given that that has been the religion that has finally taken over, um, how do you see it as possible that perhaps another religion could become predominant if it doesn't specifically see itself as the fulfillment of the, the political arrangement that America is, you know, has been in for the past 250 years?
0: I mean, I think that that I think there is a very strong and plausible argument there, right? That says, okay, you know, at some point, you know, this is sort of I mean the, the the way I'd frame it is American society is intensely individualistic, right? Relative relative to many other societies in human history. And at a certain point, you know, that individualism demands a more individualist religion. Sort of the core elements of Gnosticism that you see in our own era, kind of God within spirituality, you know, sort of this are, are highly, highly oriented towards American individualism. If you go and look at, you know, the 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 crucial texts of the 70s or our own era, sort of Oprah style and spirituality. Right. It's all sort of key to this sense of individualism. Um, And so, yeah, it's this sort of organic unfolding process, and you have to cut away the political root in this kind of individualistic style of politics.
2: That's possible.
0: Um, On the other hand, right, like, one, it's not clear to me where, for instance, the current revolution within Gnosticism ends up right like certain elements like you just look at what we call the awakening now right certain elements of it sort of seem to further that individualism it's like well of course liberalism is going to go from same sex marriage to transgenderism to as many genders as there are people right like that's that's obviously liberalism working itself out you need to cut away the liberal taproot what's happening with race and sex is a little different right it's it's more oriented towards group identity. It's more oriented, I think, in certain ways, back towards ideas of the common good. There's, I think, very clearly an attempt to impose not a Christian sexual ethic, but an actual sexual ethic on the kind of hyper-individualism that I like to call Hefnerism, right? Like Hefnerism, when Hugh Hefner died, I wrote uh, the nastiest, Piece I've ever written at the Times, and a very, which was very popular, which tells you something about the internet, um, about him. And I felt like I was, you know, one, one of a minority of people writing attacks on Hugh Hefner after he died. Most of the pieces were like this guy, you know, civil liberties, freedom, the 60s, it's awesome. That was two months before the Harvey Weinstein stuff broke. Today, you know, Hugh Hefner, I'm not going to say he's been canceled, he's kind of been canceled right? Like, and Hefnerism is not, it's not where woke progressivism is going. It's going somewhere different, right? So if you can have these, and the race it's a little more complicated, but there's similar dynamics. So if you can have these kind of communitarian rebellions within the Gnostic heresy itself, I think that tells you that things are a little more fluid and flexible than these kind of, like, liberalism leads to progressivism, leads to Gnosticism, gotta cut away the root, would lead you to think, right? I mean, a different way to think about it is that America has always contained within itself a lot of different tendencies, and you go through highly individualistic periods and more communitarian periods, and there's cycles and ebbs and flows and religious religious awakenings play key roles in these eras. And for a set of, you know, somewhat contingent reasons having to do with technological changes, economic changes, changes, you know, in the role of women, the birth control pill, later the invention of the internet, all these things, Christianity didn't adapt to that post-60s era and it created an opening for a different kind of cult to sort of ride that wave. But this wave is still there. You're still getting more individualistic forms and then more communitarian reactions, which, yeah, it just suggests to me that it's not this sort of absolute progression from, you know, John Locke to where we are, and you got to go back and kill Locke, again. Time machine, kill John Locke, right? I don't. I, I don't. I don't think that's right. And and then the other point. I mean, I, look. I I also don't want to minimize the challenge faced by Christianity. I mean, I think the core issue here is, you know, there's there's a um, those those changes. I don't know what the right Christian adaptation is to those changes, right? I don't have a five point plan for how the churches should deal with the sexual revolution meets the iPhone ideas. But, you know, people have obviously been trying to adapt. And it's not, it's not like, you know, we keep coming back to these same debates within the Christian churches, because they're really hard problems of adaptation, where they're, yeah, it's a big, it's a big challenge. I'm just, I'm skeptical that Locke makes it impossible. And I'm also skeptical that America is completely unique in being, oh, this is the only time and place when the Gnostic heresy could possibly have triumphed because of our rampant individualism. My understanding, the other critique of Gnosticism is that it's the eternal heresy of Christianity. And, you know, if it hadn't been for St. Dominic, it would have taken over medieval Europe, which was definitely not a hyper individualistic Internet mediated society. Right. (laughs) And or, you know, had things shaken out a little bit differently in the fourth century, right? you know, maybe more the third or second century. But either way, in very different times and places, Gnosticism has emerged as a kind of symbiote slash rival to Christianity. And that, too, I think, should make us skeptical of a kind of absolutism about, you know, the sort of the liberal orders effects on people's theological and spiritual beliefs. But I, I don't dispute that for at least contingent reasons, American liberalism has been, yeah, a sort of a potent incubator of this, this kind of uh, spirituality. That, that is obviously true. So pick you have a point you
1: just raised, um, I actually just was reading Acts recently and soft power within a pluralistic society might be a way to describe the early church. So I was wondering if there are cycles. Uh, it seems like you were touching on a few. I was wondering if you could sketch what those cycles look like in medieval, medieval Europe. Because I have a hard time accepting that it's been a hegemon in the way that you might glibly uh, describe it through Europe for two thousand years. So I'm wondering if you could give more details on that. Except that you just raised.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we'd need to, you know, bring in a true historian rather than rather than a journalist. Um, but I mean I think I think the early church represents sort of a the sort of extreme case, right? Where it's obviously starting from almost nothing and and you know is the faith of the empire by by the end. And then you have but but that's that story is itself, I think, sort of a an account that shows the complexity of these questions, right? Because you can say, you can look at that story and say, well, you know, Christianity wouldn't have actually become the religion of the empire if Constantine hadn't basically imposed it, right? Like there's a story about that whole cycle that fits with the more sort of, you know, it places politics closer to the center. Um, But then it's also contestable, right? Where you say, well, one, you know, Constantine would never have <laughs> considered becoming a Christian had there not been this remarkable, remarkable, you know, remarkably, remarkable influence within the pluralism of the empire um, that can't be explained by the use of state power. And two, if you read, um, you know, what's what's the book that everybody reads and analogizes to the rise of wokeness? The last pagan, the final pagan generation, right? Um, everyone here has obviously read this book. The The that account, it's like, all right, well, you know, Constantine, Constantine and his successors did sort of impose Christianity, and there was sort of some, you know, closures of temples and some persecution, but for the most part, the pagan life of the empire went on, and even there, the reason Christians won over the course of the 4th century and 5th century, while, by the way, fighting with each other about doctrine every chance they get, was its own version of this sort of, you know, they had they had more intensity and more seriousness and they did continue to use soft power as well as as well as harder power um so those would be some of the complexities I guess just in that wave um I mean you know the, the modern era is obviously distinct right and 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 this is where sort of the more technology enters the story the harder it gets to sort of analogize perfectly to to pre-modern conditions but yeah, I mean you could you could sort of continue the story and say whatever Constantine did the Roman Empire fell apart and you know the Christianity of the dark ages wasn't really within plural that's not the right way to think about the dark ages exactly right it's not exactly pluralism when the Vikings are burning your village um but it is you know it, it was a fe- it was sort of a dispersed pluralism where you would get radically different beliefs if you've got on a ship and sail, uh, sail a little ways away. And there certainly, you know, even when Charlemagne comes on the scene, it's a long time before you have sort of centralized impositions. Um, so yeah, there are ways in which, you know, any period before you get to modern state building, even with formal Christian power, effectively Christianity is still operating, I think, in some version of, of Maritain's way. And we're sort of, you know, the, the period that is sort of associated with, um, yeah, with, with peak integralism, if you will, is not 2,000 years of Christian history. It's, you know, maybe 12th century to the wars of the Reformation, plus some sort of discrete periods previously. Um, but then, you know, the integralists would stand up and say, well, what about when Clovis converted? That was how we got France, right? You know, I mean, so, it's complicated and you need a real historian.
2: We you mentioned very often obviously the you know trade-off that occurs, balancing act um between you know these values being enforced with a you know power, soft power analogy by, like um versus pluralism. But it seems to me like the you know the larger trade-off uh is liberty, right? Or broadly, Um because that's where I think that's where we see more attention to you know the you know, the extra value of you know, said values. Or not and this is like you know the angel question for any turgoist I assume but um you know when we're doing such a delicate balancing act between all these different ideas um how do you what what role does you know liberty have in this vision of the common good that you have and uh, what, what where is this and what principle line do we draw uh, when it comes to you know maintaining liberties um as a good in itself or for a higher end and what role is liberty for overall in such a system?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and there is a long section actually of the Maritan chapter that's more focused on that to some extent. Um, And I think my my reading of well, there's sort of two right. There's sort of two issues, right? One, he is himself picking up on the you know what you might call the sort of proto-liberal strand in christian thinking throughout right which is the idea that you know you're not you are not actually supposed to coerce belief right and that that sort of the conversion the coercion of the non-believer is in some sense unchristian which is not specifically a specifically modern idea it's an important christian idea from the start it's just you get you get the complexity that enters in um, with the question of the church's authority over the baptized, and that's the theoretical complexity. And then the practical complexity is: you may say, you know, we're not going to we're not going to coerce our Jewish neighbors, <laughs> or our Muslim, or our Muslim neighbors, um, but in in practice, obviously, um, pre modern Christianity ended up, you know, attempt, attempting to do ex- exactly that. Um, And I don't think Maritain Maritain resolves those complexities, but, you know, his argument is that you are effectively, the church has not sufficiently erred on the side of liberty and needs to err more on the side of liberty with then the sort of corollary that, you know, that that I think is correct, right, which is about separate from liberty of belief, liberty of behavior, right, Uh, where, uh, you know, he follows Aquinas in saying that you know not not all forms of sin and wickedness should be prevented by state power, um, and which forms of sin and wickedness should be prevented by state power? Well, that's a prudential question, um, which is a huge cop out, but in fact is is, <laughs> is is but is is actually correct, right? And it's so. I, I I'm just you know this is sort of now just my own personal personal thinking on something particular to America, Um, but it's, I think, a fine place to end. I wrote a column a few, a couple of weeks ago after the Super Bowl about the spread of gambling in the United States, right? And, you know, what what should the law do about gambling? Should it, you know, stamp it out entirely? Should it allow it generally? I don't think there's any perfect answer to that question. And any line you draw about the regulation of gambling is going to seem arbitrary. And, you know, but in the column, I basically made a defense of the totally arbitrary system that I grew up with, where, you know, you could do casino gambling in Atlantic City and Las Vegas and then on some Native American reservations. Was that? Was there any consistent principle at work in that system? Of course not. It was historically contingent, um, you know, rested on you know, Bugsy Siegel's adventures in the Nevada desert and um, the cleverness of, you know, tribal tribal leaders and their lawyers. But I think it would have been a really good prudential resting point for American law and custom on on gamble. And it, this maybe is some aspect of American character that's connected to our liberalism or something, you know, something something specifically American. But I think Americans really don't like that kind of like this is you know it's arbitrary right I, you know something something connected to the idea the idea of rights which is something we haven't touched at all on in this discussion so I'm just throwing it out there at the end right? but something about founding your political system on rights does maybe seem to push people away from a certain kind of prudential balancing of liberty and morality and towards once a liberty is conceded, it has to be demanded full spectrum. You know, if you can gamble in New Jersey, you have to be able to gamble in Connecticut. If you can bet on the Super Bowl here, you have to be able to do it there. And I do think that's a challenge and a problem in our national life that yeah, maybe is connected to certain inherent political tendencies of our regime. So on that point, conceding important ground to the integralists, I guess I'll stop. <laughs>